except Crispus and Gaius, so no one can say that you were baptized in my name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be empty of its power. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Good morning, church. If I've never met you before, I'm Brian. I'm the pastor here at Trinity City Church. Uh, children, uh, preschool up to second grade are dismissed. If you have kiddos that are going up to that second floor uh, classroom, a uh, teacher informed me that it'd be a good idea to have them bring their coats with them. It's a little chilly on the second floor today. Well, if you were, you got up this morning and you thought, man, I have a fever and the only prescription is more pipe organ. This was the Sunday for you, right? I mean, that was, we don't do this very often. It was great, it was in tune. I grew up uh, with pipe organ every Sunday, uh, so it was uh, amazing to kind of switch to more variety in church when I went to college and that sort of thing in terms of instrumental, but it's so good going back and now kind of getting that variety. And that thing was like, shake the pews loud. I love it. Uh, that's so, so good to worship with you and sing with you uh, with that instrument today. We're right uh, at the beginning of a sermon series on 1 Corinthians. We just started last Sunday. If you missed out last Sunday, not a big deal. It was an overview of the entire uh, letter of Paul to the church in Corinth. Uh, I'd encourage you to listen to it if you want a good overview from uh, just a big picture of all the chapters of this letter. And now, with uh, the coming weeks, we are just going to go through this book of the Bible uh, section by section, verse by verse, and whatever comes up, comes up. And there's going to be a lot of things that come up in this uh, book of the Bible. I mean, you could almost call this sermon series uh, a church gone wild. It is just a lot going on. It's a, it's a very messed up church. It's a very unhealthy church. But nonetheless, Paul writes to this church because he cares about the church and he wants to see the church restored with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we're just getting started in this book. Let's go ahead and pray and lean into this first section. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you um, for these saints that are here that you have called into your son Jesus Christ that they have faith in him that they have experienced grace beyond measure and that they have also uh, been through a week of many highs and lows and they are here now Lord to recenter their lives on Christ and I pray that the preaching of your scriptures would do exactly that for this assembly that's in this room for all those who are pausing their day right now at home to lean in uh, to this live stream i pray lord we would center our lives yet again on jesus christ and it's in his name we pray amen i often talk to interim pastors who have one of the most uh, significant and also intense ministries in the church in the best situations interim pastors, what they are doing is they are going into a church that's healthy and maybe has had a, a pastor who's moving on, got another job, another calling in ministry, and all he's doing and, is just seeing that the church has a healthy transition to whoever the next person is going to be. In many situations, however, what an interim pastor is doing is he's going into a church situation that has been greatly damaged by division and struggle 
and strife. If you have never talked to an interim pastor where that, that's the person's ministry, they would likely have story after story after story about this type of ministry, seeing the church through healing because of great division. Just recently, I talked to an interim pastor who was leading a church through a massive split. It was due to a new pastor taking over for uh, a former pastor who had been there for decades, 30 years of, of ministry, and this person was coming in and, and kind of taking over from there after a significant uh, transition. But this new pastor decided to take a sharp turn away from the ministry philosophy of that former pastor, a ministry philosophy that's now ingrained into the church after 30 years, and he decided to take a different turn, a sharp turn in terms of approach and ministry philosophy. And when he did that, it caused great tension, and he made matters worse by deciding that he was only going to minister and associate with people in the congregation that agreed with his new philosophy that he was going to disassociate with those who didn't agree with him and even try to force them out. Eventually, the denomination stepped in, advised the church to move on from this pastor and to take an interim into their ministry to guide them uh, away from all the strife that had been happening and the division that had happened because of this. And this poor church, kid you not, so this happens, this transition from this pastor who kind of oversaw a ministry of division, interim comes in, two weeks later, COVID shuts everything down in March of 2020. Now, if you're involved in the life of the church for any extended period of time, you have stories like this. You have been likely impacted by some form of church division. And even if you've been a part of churches that have been united, and healthy, you likely know brothers and sisters in Christ that have been impacted by this type of reality. Local churches have split over everything under the sun, everything imaginable, how to spend the budget, the direction of the church, musical styles, maybe an offensive illustration in the sermon, whatever it is. They have split over these things. And other times, it's been very significant issues, understandable issues. Issues like overbearing leadership, abusive environments, or turning away from the Orthodox faith expressed in the creeds, the Apostles and Nicene creeds. And in these situations, it's very difficult because many times people that are in those situations, they have great highs of experiences in the church. They may have been led to Christ and have seen you know, family members baptized, and then the, the situation turns abusive, and then they have a faith crisis as a result of that. And this type of splits that happen in church is understandable due to sin. In the past two years, Christians are dividing over issues related to politics, pandemics, masks, among other things. This is a reality that we are all feeling right now in this historical moment of a church. And it is, if you're like me, it's exhausting. It's discouraging. And you want to turn to something that makes sense of this and something that you say, maybe this, maybe this has the power to bring the church back into unity. And that's what Paul wants to address. He's considering a specific situation of church division, and it's a bad reason for church division. He's going to highlight that reason and then give the solution of the one thing that has the power to overcome church division and bring the church back together. So let's get started. Look at verse 10 with me. Verse 10. Paul writes, 
I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. So Paul is making this appeal to brothers and sisters in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, because the church, and this is how he identifies the church right out of the gate, we are a family who belong to Jesus Christ. What comes to mind when you think about church, a building, a nonprofit, or a team? Well, all these categories might be helpful in some regard, but one of the main ways that you ought to think, that we ought to think about the church, is as a family belonging to the Lord Jesus Christ. And the reason why that's important and why this is an important appeal for Paul right, right at the beginning of this section is that it's easier mentally to say, like, ah, it's just a nonprofit. I can just switch my, my devotion to somewhere else. But it's harder to do that. It's harder to justify that if what you're thinking about, the, the, the group of people that you're thinking about, is family. It's brothers and sisters in Christ, bought with the blood of Jesus Christ, and we belong to him, and we are in a family of one another. The stakes are a lot higher there. You can't just give up on something like that. As a family, Paul writes, he wants the church to agree with one another in what they say without any divisions. He wants them to be perfectly united in mind and thought. Now, what Paul is appealing to here is that it's not some type of uniformity where everyone in the church looks alike, acts alike, and there's no diversity among them. We've already established in last week's sermon that Corinth, and part of the stress in the church of Corinth, it was that this was a church that was incredibly diverse. It was very diverse among ethnic and economic lines. So that's the reality. So this is a very diverse church. Probably had different Myers-Briggs uh, that were personality types that were part of it. I mean, there's a lot of different ways that a church can be diverse. So he's not talking about some sort of uniformity where there's no, never any disagreement, never any diversity, never anything like that. He's not talking about that. He's not even probably talking about something that there isn't ever any theological disagreements because the Christian faith, you will have brothers and sisters in Christ that will have different opinions on non-essential issues that aren't rooted in the centrality of the gospel, and that's okay, and you're going to have that. But what Paul is saying here is that there is a true unity that he's appealing to, a unity that's around the essentials of the gospel of Jesus Christ expressed in things like the Apostles and Nicene Creed, and that when, when, the, when the church is united around that, then there's this wonderful diversity that can happen when there's uniformity around the gospel of Jesus Christ. In other words, this church is not on the same page with the gospel. That's what's causing the division. The gravity that's pulling this church together should be the gospel, but it's been replaced by something else. I think we are, we are in a, a cultural situation where for many of us we want diversity and it's a good thing, but often we try to have the gravity of our diversity be something that's worldly and earthly and it's going to break, and it's going to break because it's not something eternal like the gospel of Jesus Christ that is pulling a diverse group of people together. So why are they divided? What's the issue? And part of the answer comes from that word of, that he uses that's translated as division. In the original context, this word is often used in political context to essentially mean dividing into partisan groups. 
This is the type of division in this context that's tearing apart the body of Christ. And then Paul goes on in verses 11 through 12, gets more specific. He says, My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this, one of you says, I follow Paul. Another says, I follow Apollos. Another says, I follow Cephas. And still another, I follow Christ. So Paul says he's hearing about divisions from Chloe's people. What's, what's that all about? Well, likely Chloe is a businesswoman who had people that worked for her who were part of Paul's present church. If you remember, Paul is not in the church of Corinth right now. He has moved on to another church. So this is a group of people that work for Chloe, and they're part of Paul's present church, but they traveled for work went to the city of Corinth, said, hey, I'll visit this church. I know Paul started it. Let's see what that's all about. They see that it's pretty dysfunctional, that there's some things going on. So when they go back to Paul, they report to him and give him an earful of how dysfunctional this church is that he started in the city of Corinth. So that's what's going on. And the issue isn't mainly theological, although it could be rooted in that, but it's rather due to the social quarrels that they're having with one another, and it's all associated with status, which makes sense because what we know about the city of Corinth and the Corinthian culture is that it was very competitive. It was very status-focused. That, 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 that uh, was what drives a lot of the, the, the decisions that they make, and so they would start to puff out their status by being associated with different personalities. So different people in the church are inflating their own self-importance by saying, this is the person that I follow who's a pretty big deal. And Paul gives a list of these all-stars who people within this church have decided to associate themselves with to inflate their own self-importance. He goes to Apollos, who is the church leader who came after Paul in the, in the church plant of Corinth. So Paul starts it. Apollos comes, and he starts to build on Paul's work. And what we know about him is that he was, a, he was in, in tremendously sharp theologically and a very, very good public speaker. So some people were like, that guy's the man, and I associate with him as a way to inflate their own status. He gives other examples. There's Cephas, who's also the apostle Peter, who was the original 12. So somebody says, well, I follow Paul. And the other person says, well, I follow Peter. He was one of the original 12. Apollos wasn't. And that was the type of bickering that was happening. And Paul gives himself as one of the examples where someone else comes along and says, yeah, you might follow these people, but, but Paul was the founder of our church. That's how big of a deal he is. And so this is what's going on. And then you get to the group that says, I follow Christ, which seems like that should be the answer, right? That should be what we all say. If there's all this bickering about earthly leaders that people are following, wouldn't we want to be the one that'd be like, hey, 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 I follow Christ. Just chill out, people, right? That is the godly answer. But what's likely happening here is that the folks that are saying this are saying it in a very pietistic, uppity way that's just like, oh, you follow all these earthly people. Well, I follow Jesus. It's just the high, pietistic answer. It'd be like, it'd be like the, it's the group of Christians where you'd say, what's your favorite uh, um, uh, song? What's your favorite song? It'd be like, oh, don't listen to secular music, I listen to hymns. You know, it'd be that type of thing. It'd be like, well, what's, what's your favorite writer? And they'd be like, oh, the Holy Spirit, he wrote the Bible, <laughs> right? What's your favorite movie? And they'd be like, oh, 
God is not dead, part five, right? I mean, that's what they, they only are in that thing. They're uber pietistic, and everything they do is religious, right? That's the I follow Christ group. Now, Paul is not saying that these leaders want this. Paulos and Paul and Peter, they likely would not like this type of attention. They would likely say, don't do this. You, you follow Jesus. I'm trying to point to him. Why are you making this all about me? Like, don't make it about me. And that's what a good Christian leader does. He doesn't want the attention to be on him. Uh, and it's, I think this is funny. I was thinking about this point a little bit because there's this uh, sweatshirt that I want, this sweater that I want, an ugly Christmas sweater of John Calvin. And if you know John Calvin, he's known for a lot of things, but one of them is the, the doctrine of total depravity, that all of you stink and you need the gospel. That's the, depra- the doctrine of depravity. So the sweater that I want is this one. It has a picture of John Calvin and a Christmas hat, and it says, you all are on the naughty list. And I would just like, love that, but I do think in the back of my mind, he would hate that that exists, that there's something with his image on it. Like, he would not like that because of this type of reasoning. Like, don't follow me, follow Jesus. He would want the attention off of him, but if you want to get me that sweatshirt, I would gladly take it, uh, and I would wear it on Christmas Eve, just like he wouldn't even know about it. Anyways, it's fine. Uh, so this is the issue. So this is, you're starting to get on, there's a lot of different causes for different types of church divisions. Here, it has something to do with status-seeking, with inflating your self-importance by attaching yourself to certain groups of people that you think, if I associate with this person in this name, it makes me look good, and it increases my status. Now, if you don't think that applies to the church nowadays in America, you're missing the point. This is exactly this type of thing that's not just an ancient problem, but an ongoing problem, a present problem. Let me give you a story, an example of what I mean. I know of a church planter he, who planted a, a house church movement in Uptown, and now a lot of his house churches are throughout the city. And at a, at a time, this was years ago, he was, he was struggling uh, to try to acquire this property in Uptown uh, where his house churches could come on Sunday and gather together. So that was kind of his model, that it was mainly about house churches, but then on Sunday they would do kind of more of a, a corporate gathering. And so he was struggling with trying to figure out how to do this. Real estate is crazy in that, that uh, part of our city. And he was going to this conference where one of these big-name pastors came in. Uh, and I won't use his name because this is the type of pastor that would love for me to draw attention to him, but I will not do that. Uh, that's not the point of this sermon or this illustration. But this is a big-name pastor. He came in, and he got into a setting where him and a group of pastors were, it wasn't during the conference, it was after the conference, and they were able to be in a living room together. And he was just sharing with this bigger-name pastor, the, the you know, house church pastor from Uptown, like some of his struggles and how, man, this church, this church building would be perfect uh, for our, our uh, movement of house churches, but we just can't pull it off. We just don't have the finances for it. And the, the, big, the big name guy in the room says, well, what if we bought it? And what he meant by that wasn't just buy it for this church, but what this church was trying to do during this time was they're effectively trying to franchise their church brand and expand it into different sites in different states. And so what he said to this pastor is, you know what we're going to do? I can buy this church for you. We'll slap my church's name on it, we'll, and I'll come in, and, I'll, and you can go to be a, 
uh, uh, kind of a campus pastor, and I'm going to be on the screen, and I'm going to, like I do with every church, I'm going to fill this thing up, we'll pay all your bills, and that's how we're going to do it. And I remember that pastor just saying how deflating that was, how absolutely, like, is this, is this what the church is all about? That it's about this brand, it's about this person, it's about like, well, I can fill up this place and you can't. And don't just think that this is a large church problem. There's, there's a type of small church expression of this too, where it's a very big personality in a small church and the, the culture of that is we're like the frozen chosen. We're the ones that do it all, all, all correctly. That's why there's only few of us because everybody else out there has it wrong. And this is where you have, have this, like even in a small church setting, this self-inflated status of we are the ones that have it all together. We are the big deal. This is the type of thing, brothers and sisters, that divides the church of Christ and splits it in this trivial, earthly, and meaningless way. Paul has a different alternative for us, and we start to unpack that in verses 13 through 16. Let's look at those verses. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except for Crispus and Gaius. So no one can say that you were baptized in my name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. So here Paul lists a bunch of questions. And the obvious answer to each one of these questions is, nope, no way, not at all. That's his answer. He says, is Christ divided? Which he mean, what he means by that is, do you really think that Christ divided against these other groups of Christians and he only belongs to your tribe? Is that how, how you conceive of Christ? And, and, and Paul says, no, Christ doesn't divide against his church that way. Christ is the head of all the church and all the expressions of the church. Christ is not divided like you are. Then he asks, was Paul crucified for you? And of course the answer is no. Jesus Christ is the one who laid down his life for the church. And he's starting to unpack how ridiculous this is. Why would you make anybody else a bigger deal in the church of Jesus Christ? Because none of them laid down your life, absorbed the wrath of God, took the judgment that was meant for you. No one else did that. All motivated by love and grace. No human leader comes close, yet we exalt them to exalt our own self-importance instead of Jesus Christ. He says, were you baptized in the name of Paul? No, of course not. When we are baptized, we're baptized into union with Christ, in union with his death where the old self has died, and we raise with Christ in new life as we are baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now Paul goes on and he says that he's grateful that he didn't baptize many of the people in Corinth. He lists off a couple people that he did baptize, just to clarify, he's not saying that he didn't baptize anybody. And then in one of these moments, and I want to pause here to see, just to have you appreciate the human element of Holy Scripture. Because sometimes we miss this type of thing. It is true that the church believes that there is one divine author of, of all of Scripture, but we also believe that has been expressed in diverse human authors uh, through the, all the books of the Bible that we have pulled together in our canon. Once in a while, you have these moments in Scripture like this one where you can appreciate that because we're not for sure why this parenthesis exists here, but a lot of commentators, it's funny that the best get, guess at it is awesome because most likely Paul is in a room and he's 
saying the letter out loud, and there's somebody else in the room with him writing down what he has to say. So likely he's saying this, and he's reflecting on, oh yeah, there's these two people that I baptized, and they, they really do think that the person writing it down says, well, Paul, what about, what about this household? You forgot about them. Oh, yeah, 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 put them down too, yeah, and this house too, and that's exactly probably what happened here, because we have to remember this was a human author in a real situation, in a real church. Divinely inspired scripture has that beautiful aspect of it, and you're seeing that here in this verse. Now, Paul goes on and says this as his main point. Verse 17, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Now, Paul isn't saying that baptism is unimportant. He writes about the importance of baptism in other letters. He writes about baptism a lot. He thinks baptism is a big deal. But right here, he's saying that baptism isn't as big a deal as the cross of Jesus Christ. Baptism is a vital celebration of our union with Christ and a means of grace for all those who believe. Yet, the point of baptism is to be a tangible and visible expression of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that's what he's saying. He's saying, I'm mainly here to preach the gospel. That's the purpose of baptism. That's the purpose of communion. That's the purpose of the songs we sing. That's the purpose of the mission of the church is to be all about the gospel and to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul will go on, of course, to say that the resurrection is a major part of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He'll devote an entire chapter, chapter 15, to unpacking the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But here he's focusing on the cross, that the cross is an essential element of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he is saying, if we are doing anything, if we are doing anything, brothers and sisters, other than preaching the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, then we are no longer doing something that's distinctively Christian. Period. That's what Paul wants us to know. If you are a church, if you are a Christian, the main task at hand, the main message that you proclaim, the thing that you tell the earth, the whole world, is Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ crucified, and anything other than that replaces that centrality of the cross, then you are no longer doing something that's distinctively Christian anymore. Because remember again, those in Corinth, they're status-obsessed, not only with the church leaders they're identifying with, but also on what they rely on in the power of their ministry. Paul mentions it here briefly. He says that we shouldn't do it with wisdom and eloquence. And that was a phrase, these were terms that were used in that culture that emphasized this, this way of, of speaking and participating in philosophical debates where the main goal was to try to persuade people into something that you believed in. So there the emphasis culturally that they're experiencing is that the main approach that these in Corinth were taking in their ministry was it didn't really matter for them what the content was. All that mattered was that they persuaded people and that they won and that they grew and whatever caused them to do it, it didn't matter as much as the fact that that was what was being done. It was the, the, the emphasis was on the persuasion part, not the content that you're winning people to. And Paul's taking issue with that. He is taking issues with that. Because he is saying that even if you persuade a great number of people into your ministry, but it is absent of the cross, 
You have unloaded the, the church of Jesus Christ of its power in the gospel. You have stripped that power away, and you have replaced it with this earthly means of gaining popularity and status. And next week, we're going to look at him unpacking this in detail. And this is one of the reasons he goes to the cross right now and not the resurrection yet, because there is a lot about the cross, if that's the center of your message, that is going to be offensive, gory, and uncomfortable no matter what the cultural setting is. And he says that, but when you do preach that and people come to Jesus, there's power in that. There's authenticity in that, and that is what the church is all about. How do you pull, again, a group of diverse people together in a single church? How do you do that and fight against, not, not get rid of division, because there's always going to be moments of tension the temptation to divide against your brothers and sisters in Christ, that's a reality this side of the new heaven and earth. So the, 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 the issue here and the question at hand is, when that happens, church, how do you overcome it? How do you deal with the threat of division when it comes? Because it will come to even your community of believers because we are broken sinners. And the first thing, the main thing is this. Make Christ a bigger deal than anything else. You're going to have your differences. Even some, some non-essential theological differences, you're going to have political differences, you're going to have differences over a lot of different things. And when the gospel is small and those differences are bigger, that's where you have the formula for church division. But when the gospel is big and the cross of Jesus Christ is big, then these other things, and they might be significant, they might be worth having a hard conversation over. I'm not saying that. But it's put in its proper place where you're saying, I'm going to have a tough conversation. I'm going to lean into this. I'm not going to avoid this tough topic. But I'm going to do this with a brother and sister that's been bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And that's a bigger deal than anything else that we are dealing with. And the only other thing I would say in terms of pastoral wisdom and how you overcome this temptation to divide against your brothers and sisters in Christ is also to remember that everybody's in a process. Everybody's dealing with things. Sometimes you're dealing with things and being confronted with things culturally for the first time, and you're just trying to figure it out, right? And one of the things that we need to do is let people have room and space to figure that out. Even if from your perspective, you're like, they're stupid, they don't get it. If they were just enlightened in me, and like, blah, blah, blah. And, and you just sometimes need to chill out. Give people space. Make the gospel a big deal, but then also let them figure things out. I mean, think of you five years ago. You probably would think of yourself five years ago and be like, look at that heretic. Can't believe I believed in that stuff, right? You're a work in process too. And one of the things we need to do with one another is make the cross big and be patient and gracious with one another because we are all a work in process. Most likely every one of us in this room has an opinion about something that we think is a big deal and we're going to be completely changing our mind about it in five years as we're in fellowship with one another in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's the thing that, that, that brings us together. And we don't want to be in a position where we look back and be like, I can't believe I broke fellowship over that thing. That I, I held that opinion so passionately that I wasn't able to come to the table anymore with my brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, I want to conclude with a story that has little to do on the surface with uh, what was causing the division here in the church in Corinth, but I think is still 
there's a powerful principle in this story that I, I come back to this story in this conversation I have many, many times when I think about uh, people willing to divide over things in the church or leave a church. And this example from somebody who was suffering. And I once had a sister in Christ who uh, I had a conversation with her on the other side of some, some great suffering she had, had faced, and she was still processing it. And, and most of it was, had to do with several years associated with trying to get pregnant. And just the, the heartache, the break, the, 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 the agony that comes from that. And what often happens with, with folks that are suffering in the church is that uh, there's aspects of, of suffering that you deal with when you're in the church where you are comforted a lot by brothers and sisters in Christ, and, it's, it, and, and there's aspects of it that's really good, and then other aspects of it that's, that's really, really hard. That uh, sometimes maybe somebody has never walked through suffering with another brother and sister in Christ, and they're just kind of clumsy about it, or sometimes they're kind of careless about it. And so when somebody is suffering, they're often hurt in that experience because of relationships in the church as well. And because of that, it's often tempting to leave because it gets hard. It gets hard to suffer sometimes in a community of people because, again, sometimes uh, folks know how to walk that path and others don't do it very well. I remember sitting uh, down with her and she was, she was processing this and she said something that was just so beautiful, so distinctive about this temptation just to, like, to call it quits and to tap out. And she just said, what would it say about my gospel if I was willing to break unity with my brothers and sisters in Christ over this? And this was a big deal. This was like a very agonizing experience that she was going through. And like some pastorally, sometimes I see situations like this and it's like, yeah, it makes sense. You've been through a lot and maybe you just kind of need a different dance partner, a different church. You're not abandoning the church. You just want a fresh start. But she leaned into it and she said, no, what? I'm not going to do that. And I'm not going to do that because what does it say about my gospel if I do? This is a gospel that brought Jew and Gentile together and I'm just going to say, no, I'm going to quit because it just got hard. And as we see in this text, they were dividing over far less than that reality. And Christians every single week divide over fellowship with one another another with these trivial ways of thinking about the world because their gospel has gotten so small. But what this sister reminded me of is when your gospel is big, when the cross of Jesus Christ is big, it will bring unity with your brothers and sisters in Christ. We'll continue to move to something that focuses our eyes on the gospel with this table. We celebrate communion every week as Trinity City Church. Uh, For those of you that are visiting, this is one of the ways that we do liturgy so that we have another way each and every week to have a tangible expression of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The music team's gonna be coming up here. And then after we uh, say a prayer together, Uh, They'll play this first song, and then you are invited to come up, take a piece of bread, take a cup, and take it back to your seat, and you can take communion as you feel led. If you're here this morning and and just Christianity's not your thing yet, you're just, you're figuring things out, you're kicking the tires of Christianity, feel no pressure to participate in this, to try to blend in. This is truly a community where we want you to be here. We want you to ask the questions and to wrestle with things and to just hear a book of the Bible preached because a lot of the things that you probably have questions about are going to come up in this book of the Bible, in 1 Corinthians, more than likely it will. So linger here and continue to explore. If you are here this morning and Trinity City Church is your home, or if you're just visiting and you believe in Jesus, we open this table to you and we invite you to come. This is what Paul writes about 
about the table in 1 Corinthians. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let me lead us in a prayer of confession, and then we'll close this time by saying the Lord's Prayer together. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that this season of Advent would be meaningful. And as we focus on that, we also sadly confess that we do so little with all the things that you have given us. Forgive us, Lord, for not bending the knee, for not reading your word, for not searching our hearts, for not facing our sins, and for dividing against the church of Jesus Christ for trivial reasons. Forgive us according to your tender mercies, O God. Grant that we, this Christmas season, would celebrate your grace like the morning grace that breaks each dawn. That we may have a fresh sense of your presence this season and renewed resolve to live to the praise of your Son, Jesus Christ, and his glory alone. Amen. Let's say this prayer together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours now and forever. Amen.